just tell you a story to open it up. We were in a different country, and we went into a temple. It had said to be about 500 years old, and uh, we went in there. In fact, this particular temple in this particular city in this country, they designated as the spiritual center of the universe. In fact, there were people from all over the world that would come to this place because they, again, thought it was the spiritual center of the universe. And so here's kind of what it looked like. It was a room about four or five times the size of this room. It was just a concrete floor. There were no seats, no pews. The people that were in there to so-called worship, they would gather as either just a single person or they would have their family with them, and they would go to a particular idol because the walls of this temple, all four sides of the walls, there were idols after another all the way around it. And families, or again, maybe just an individual, would go and sit on the floor in front of this particular idol. And here's what they would do. If you were able to, you could purchase candles as you came into this temple. And the more candles, the better. It just depended on how much money you had. And you, what you would do is you'd sit in front of a particular idol and you would light your candles, drip some wax on the floor, and stand the candle up. And again, the more candles you had, the better it was going to be for you. And I'll explain in a moment. And so they would light these candles, and they would set as a family together, and they would weep and cry, and then they would chant. And they would chant things over and over and over again, just constant chanting and weeping. At the same time, they would have homemade liquor. In other words, it would be like moonshine, and they as a family, including their children, would drink this and get into a drunken stupor in front of this idol. And then if you were to, if, especially if you had the means, in other words, if you could afford to give up one of your chickens that maybe you would have for dinner that day, in fact, some of them would, it would be like they would give up they could bring this chicken, and while they were doing all of these this idol, they would wring the neck of the chicken, and they would spill the blood of the chicken out in front of this idol. And this is what would take place. And then what you would see, if you stayed there long enough, you would see this family get up as unsure, without any assurance that they were heard, and they would leave as sad as they came in because they had no assurance at all. And so just a little bit of explanation. Why all the candles, why the weeping, but the chanting of certain phrases over and over again? You see, they had no assurance that their God, they considered this idol their God, little g, they had no assurance that this God would hear them and so the candles and the chanting and the weeping were attempts to get that God's attention. And they never had assurance that they had that God's attention. Why the moonshine or the hard liquor? Because they believed they had to get in a different, higher, maybe trance, a different consciousness so that they could approach this particular God because, again, they had no assurance that this God was listening to them at all. 
And again, why would they take a chicken, wring its neck, spill the blood out? Again, they were hoping this would atone for their sin. They had no assurance that their good deeds, they had no assurance that even this blood of this chicken that maybe was going to be their dinner would be enough to atone for their sin. And so again, they would leave uncertain. Now you probably realize this, but all religions of the world have no assurance. They absolutely have no assurance. They have no assurance that their whatever they're worshiping is listening or will answer or will do anything. For most people, they have no idea of what will happen to them when they die. They go right up to their deathbed, unsure, unsure, unsure. Would that not be the worst way to live in your whole life? And yet there are some believers that live unsured lives. They have no assurance. In fact, some people who claim to be believers still wonder if like when they come to their deathbed, will they enter heaven? And they have no assurance. But hear me, great news. Christianity, Christianity is not we trying to get God's attention. Christianity is God getting you and I's attention. He has come from heaven lived amongst us to get our attention. You and I don't have to worry about if we're going to get his attention. Really what the worry is, is does he have your attention? And so that's what we want to talk about today. I want to talk about assurance. In fact, as we've been reading through the Bible this year together, we have just finished 1 John. So I want, if you will, turn there to 1 John. If you have been reading, you've just finished this letter. This particular letter is all about having assurance. And so as you're turning there, just give you a little background. There were some particular people during that day that were false teachers. They had a different thought instead of the scriptures. They were called Gnostics. A Gnostic was someone that said they had a higher view of God. They had knowledge that you did not have. Oh, you had the scriptures? Well, they had more than that. They had something that you did not have. In fact, these Gnostics, they scorned those who were not enlightened. In fact, I've actually had some friends growing up. They were a particular different denomination, and they honestly looked down at me because they had what they considered a higher knowledge, a, a better blessing than I did, and kind of scorned me. They were arrogant. They were unholy. They lacked love for other people. In fact, if you've got 1 John... I just want to show you some characteristics of the Gnostics. First John, if you will, look at chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so John is helping these young believers to realize they can have assurance in Jesus. But he is also helping them understand that those who are not true believers, what they are like. See, a, a, a true believer has true love. In fact, 1 John tells, that's one of the tests of a believer, is that you now have a different kind of love. You love others. You love your enemies. You love those who hate you. 
And so he's telling, this is the kind of thing that you will see in your life as a new believer. But for those who are not, especially he's talking about the Gnostics, they were ones that they had no love for anyone. But not only that, they taught that, hear this, they taught that matter was evil, but spirit was good. And so they would say something like this, and they taught it and they practiced it, that whatever takes place in the body will not affect the spirit. So in other words, they could live as unholy as they wanted to, and they could still be right with God. How convenient, right? How convenient. And they would say these things, but I want you, if you will, go down to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Well, so because they thought that if anything that had matter was evil, they would say that Jesus was, Jesus was not human. In other words, they would deny the humanity of Jesus. And since matter or the body was evil, Jesus could not have had a body. And so there's all kinds of different uh, things and excuses they would use about that. But this actually undermines the scriptures, right, about the atonement, because if Jesus is not fully God and fully man, he cannot be what? A sacrifice for you and I, a substitute for you and I. And so he is fully God. He is fully human. In fact, look at chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many prophets are gone out into the world. And by this we know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children... You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so this particular letter, 1 John, is for, for them, they were confused because of the false teachers, but it is for you and I as well today to have assurance. And so before we kind of go through there, I, I just ask you, and you can just say it to yourself, is it not the most miserable thing of being a believer, a follower of Christ, because I've been there before where I did not have assurance? It is the worst. It's absolutely, I'm like not effective. I, I have doubts. I don't have confidence in like sharing my faith. If, I, if I'm not sure that I'm a child of God, if I'm not sure my sins are forgiven, if I am not sure that God is who he says he is, 
then I am not sure to do anything in the world. It's the most miserable situation. In fact, over the years, I've known many truly believers who yet they had doubt and they did not have assurance. And today, I just want to tell you, 1 John is written for you and I. It is written that you might have assurance because your assurance and gives you confidence to be effective in this world and just to be a child of God and to enjoy it. And I hope that these things will help you this morning. So here's the first one. It's in chapter 1, verse 5. I just give you, if you want to fill in the blank, the assurance of God's true character. This absolutely has to be the foundation of all the other assurances that First John gives you and I. If God's character cannot be trusted, then you can't trust anything else. And so First John chapter 1, verse 5, the assurance of God's true character. So just a, a little before we go. Hey, if you were going to try to get to know somebody, like they were new in your neighborhood, they were new at church, they were new at your work, new at your school, how would you like really get to know them, right? So you'd try to spend time with them, uh, you would watch them, not in the creepy way, but like, you know, watch them, like how, what they do and what they like, and, and then you would probably begin to start asking questions, right? So time with them, watch what, how they do things, maybe listen to them, ask them questions. And if you did those four or five things, you would know that person inside and out, right? No. Because it's entirely up to that person to allow themselves to be known, right? You can ask all the questions in the world. And you still might not know them because it is entirely up to them. So, in other words, if you wanted to get to know me, you could ask me questions and stuff. But honestly, it's entirely up to me. It's in my power to allow you to really know me. Does that make sense? It's the same with you. You allow people to either know you or only know so much or not anything at all. Well... With that, when it comes to God, how would you and I ever know him unless he revealed himself? Because I want you, if you will, in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him. Now, that's enough of the verse. There's way more, and it's great. But did you catch what it said? This is the message we have heard from him. You and I weren't even looking for God. And if we were looking for God, we would be like these people, these poor people that were looking to all these idols. We would be, always be looking in the wrong place if we were looking. And yet we weren't. And yet it was God who did what? He revealed himself. It is a revelation if you know God. It's not a discovery. It's not like one day I discovered God. In fact, if you're in this room today and if you know Christ, it is only because he what? Revealed himself by the Holy Spirit. He awakened you and you know him because he allowed you to know him. In fact, he goes on to say, he revealed himself and we proclaim this to you that God is light and in him is no darkness 
at all. So in other words, you and I can be assured of the character of God, that he is what light, there's no deceit in him, there's no darkness, he's absolute truth. But the even more better than that is, is that he has chosen to make himself known to you. If you have a Bible, it is a gift from God. If you are a, a child of God, it is a gift of God because he has given you the ability to know him. And so there's a little quote, if you will. It says, when there are matters of concern concealed, trust in what God has revealed. Because for many of you in this room, there are things that have happened in your life and you still do not know why. And here I, I've experienced it. I've experienced that what I will do is I will use all my energy, all my focus, everything about me to try to figure out the things that there is no revelation right now for. Make sense? We always tend to go towards like what God has not revealed and we use up all our energies like worrying, concentrating, focusing, trying to figure up, come up with an idea. Why did this happen? And yet God has not revealed it. But the thing is, God has revealed to you and I. That's what his word is. And he wants you and I to concentrate on what he has revealed, not necessarily what he hasn't revealed and you trust in what God has revealed, it is enough. Amen. Did you hear that? What God has revealed to you through his word, whatever circumstance you're in, I know some families, they've lost some children, they've lost some health, they've lost some things. They still have no answers. It's still concealed. And all energy could go there. And yet God wants you and I to take all our energies and look to what he has revealed to you and I. And maybe that's enough for some of you in this room. You don't have to go really any further. Is that, hey, I need to stop. I need to concentrate. Worship God for what he has revealed. He might one day reveal it to you. He might one day, when you get to heaven, reveal it to you. When you get to heaven, it won't matter. You know all those questions you have like, I used to have a little notebook of all the things I'd ask God when I got to heaven, like why mosquitoes, stuff like that. You do too. You have those. You know when you get to heaven, you won't even think about them. They won't matter. It'll all be good there. Two, if you will, start, look at, Chapter 1, starting in verse 9, I want to talk about the assurance of forgiveness. Because God is the creator, he's the king of the universe, and he's the lawgiver. And as a new Christian, when I heard this next statement, it really puzzled me. Because God is the creator, he is the king, he's the lawgiver, all sin is against God. I can still remember reading about David and Bathsheba, and when David came and confessed and repented towards God, he said to God, against you I have sinned. And I kept thinking, well, no, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against, and, and like, what does that mean? 
And yet the truth is, because God is God, because God is holy, because he is the lawgiver, every time you and I either lie or steal or look lustfully, it is ultimately you and I are sinning against God. Because God is holy, he will not allow any sin to be unpunished. You know these things. Any attempt on our part to atone for any sin is a cosmic insult to God. Like we would try to do something that would appease God for what he has told you and I. It goes totally against his character, against what he has spoken to you and I. And for any of thing that we would do to try to atone for it, what an insult to God. All religions teach there is a way to somehow atone for your own sin. Christianity teaches what? That God alone can forgive sin. God alone can forgive sin and give you the assurance, if you will. I want to begin in verse 7. In verse 1, it says, But if we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the only reason you and I have walk in the light and have fellowship is the very next thing, because the blood of Jesus, his son, continues to cleanse us from sin. Some of your, uh, your verse says it keeps on, it keeps us from all sin. It literally means it is continually keeping us clean from sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. God could never just sweep any sin under the rug. The moment God would dismiss or sweep it under the rug would make him unfaithful and unjust to his own character. But he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because he killed his own son in our behalf. To forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if any does sin, we have an advocate, someone who comes alongside us with the Father. It is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means Christ's death on the cross satisfied the demands of God that he had against us. And Jesus' death, it did what? It appeased God that you and I could know him and be forgiven and be his child. I warned Luke this morning I was going to use him as illustration. So don't look over this way and embarrass Luke. But Luke Raybon, this past summer, it was such a great deal. For those of us who were at Mission Arlington will remember this. And if you were in Luke's group, you will remember the day this happened. In fact, Luke was one of the sponsors. We were doing vacation Bible school in this uh, apartment complex. It was hotter than the, not as hot as the bad place, but it was hot in Texas that day. We were sweating, kids were sweating, and we were telling Bible stories to them. And if you guys remember that was in Luke's group, it was, honest, it's a miracle. It's a miracle anytime the Spirit of God awakens a person to their sin 
and to their need of the Savior. You, you know this, right? You know that May being baptized this morning, a year ago, as her dad mentioned, a year ago, it was the Spirit of God that awakened May's heart. In fact, if you're a follower of Christ today, you're only a follower of Christ today because God awakened you one day. He revealed himself. He made you to realize your sin against him. And I still remember, it was like a switch on Luke's face. And if you know Luke, he doesn't have a lot of expressions. He's like a ninja, like you don't know what's going on. But it was real evident that day, that afternoon, Spirit of God awoke in his heart, and he still I still remember him saying this, Jesus died for me. He's telling the story to little children. But Luke realizes because the Spirit of God awakens his heart that Jesus did this for me. And it changed Luke's life. In fact, he's a changed young man right now because of the very thing. He realized Jesus did this for me. My sin can be forgiven. My sin can be forgiven. It leads right into the next. If you came to my house on a clear night, in fact, like the other night, if you would have came to my house, you'd more than likely find me in the backyard with my telescope. And uh, because uh, space, stars, all that, I, I don't look at the Ouija board and uh, astronomy and all that stuff, right? I just like the stars. I like looking at a telescope because the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And it just holds my attention like nothing else. I mean, it holds my attention. Um, I, I don't really care about football. I don't really care about tel television. But if you'll take me out on a clear night, that'll hold my attention. Because it, it's just amazing to me that God would do such a thing to just uh, display how great he is. And like not one star is really that close to each other if you go into it. It's just, it's just amazing. I want you, if you will, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Because for a moment, I want to talk about the assurance of God's love for you and I. But verse 1, it, is, it tells about holding your attention. In fact, some of your translations might start with the word see. Some of yours has behold. It's an imperative in the language, means it's a, it's a command of God and that you are to be held by this truth. And so I just want you to think for a moment, what really grasps or gets your attention? Like what holds your attention? Well, God here says, here I want to tell you something and I want the truth of it to hold your attention. And so he starts out with, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So back up. You and I are to be held by a truth. And the truth is the love of God. But some of y'all's, your translation will say what kind or what manner, Right? What it literally means is, what other country did this come from because it's not from around here? He's saying that you and I are to behold the love of God because the love of God is like no other love you and I have ever seen 
or experienced. It is a different type. It is from another world type of love. God does not just love you like a parent. He loves you infinity times what your parent loves you or your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. The thing is, God's love is far beyond you and I's even imagination. But here's what I want you to see. You and I are to be held by, not only it's a different kind of love, but look at what it says. Of the love the Father has given. In other words, it is permanent. It's what's called a present tense verb. It means it is absolutely permanent. And you and I sometimes have a hard time with that because we've had people take their love back. We have people in here, you've gone through a horrible divorce or you grew up in a family where your parents did not give you that love or they took it back. Or you've had a friend that said, hey, I'm your friend, I love you, but yet they took it back. And so it's kind of hard for us sometimes to kind of look and go like, does someone really love me like a love I've never experienced? And they'll never take it away. And yet this type of love that God has given to you and I, it is absolutely permanent. It will absolutely never be taken away. If you will, look at verse 16 in the same chapter. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. If you will, flip on over to chapter 4. In chapter 4, starting in verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Go, if you will, to verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love God that love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, the love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also we are in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because why he first loved you and i and so first john is just a reminder that you can have assurance of not only God's character, his forgiveness, his love for you, but there's another assurance. In fact, it might go like this. Some people in this world, they hope in karma. Karma means that you do enough good to weigh out evil so that when you're reincarnated or recycled, that you'll come back as something different but higher. And yet, a person who believes in this has no assurance that when they die and if they come back as something better, they have no assurance that they will come back as something better. And so it is a continual thing of unassured what you will come at. And then maybe one day you will wind up to where, like you know where you're at. But you have no assurance. Some people, they hope in purgatory. They hope 
that one day they will go to a place before they go to hell or before they go to heaven and they will hope that God will somehow look at their deeds and outweigh them or they will hope that family members will pray enough for them or give enough money or do enough good deeds on your behalf to get you out of purgatory and yet they still have no assurance of what will happen after that. Some hope that one day they will become a little god and that they will rule a planet and they will be over that. But yet, again, they have no assurance. They have a hope so, but they have no assurance. If you will, chapter 5, verse 13. Some say this is like the key verse of 1 John because it's about the assurance of your salvation. And 1 John Chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things. Stop a moment. 1 John is written in such a way that John puts things in there that will be evident in a true believer's life. In other words, if you're a true believer, you'll read through 1 John. Maybe you read it during our Bible reading and you just read through it. And as you read it, you see evidences that are in your life. Not perfect, but you see evidences. Like one of them is you will be a perpetual confessor of your sins. You will be someone who does not walk in the darkness. It's not meaning you're going to be perfect, but you are walking in the ways of God. Not perfectly, but your direction is you're walking. You are loving other people. You're loving God like you've never loved them before. You're forgiving other people because you have been forgiven. So these things were written so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so over the years, I've had some people come to me, maybe you've had this, and they want to talk to you about their salvation. And they want you to give them assurance of their salvation. Like I've had a young man, I, here's one, a young man came to me, he started telling me about his life, and he honestly was looking for me to say, yes, you're a Christian. And that's what he was looking for. And I finally said, listen, I cannot tell you, I can tell you if I see some fruit in your life, but I cannot tell you if you are a true believer. But I tell you what you can do, you can take this letter you can read it. It will tell you if you are a believer or not. So he went home that night. I think he read 1 John four or five times. The next day when I saw him, he said, I read it. And I realized I wasn't. And the reason he realized he wasn't was why? Because the Spirit of God used the Word of God to reveal to him he was not a follower. He did not have these assurance. He did not have these traits of a true believer. And he realized his need for Christ. My encouragement to you today is if you do not have assurance, this book, this letter was written for you. If you know someone that does not have assurance, this letter is written for them because it is written so that you may no, not hope so, but to know if you have eternal life.
Every believer at times doubts and wonders if God hears or not, right? Some of you in this room, me included, we've prayed prayers and we have still not seen an answer. And so we wonder, does God hear? So I wonder if you will look on down in chapter 5 at verse 14. Because 1 John also gives assurance of answered prayer. In verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That would be enough if that's where God wanted to stop the verse, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be enough? It should be enough that I have assurance that God heard me. He'll do what he wants. He'll do according to his will. It should be enough for you and I. But God is so gracious, he goes on to finish it. It should be enough, but verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. So how do we know if it's according to his will? So the Bible is full of this is God's will for your life. This is God's will for my life. When Marty was going through 1 Thessalonians, it's the will of God, what? Our sanctification. It is the will of God that we live a holy life. It is the will of God that we are faithful. It is the will of God that we are full of the Spirit of God and controlled by Him. It is the will of God that the Word of God richly dwells in us, right? And so all these are the wills of God. If we would pray according to the will of God, it says that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In fact, if you look over in the quotes, one quote says, I do not know who said this quote, but it says, prayer is more of aligning myself with God's purposes than asking him to align with mine. Prayer... Whenever you and I pray, it's not about getting our answers. Prayer is more about aligning my will with God's will. When I align my will with God's will, I have the heart to ask what God wants. God will always give what he wants to give you and I. In fact, the other quote by John MacArthur, when obedient believers delight themselves in the Lord, he will plant the desire in their hearts for what glorifies him. And those desires will control their or our prayers. God's answers to those prayers will glorify him. They will bring believers' will into line with his purposes and fill them, us, with joy. So when it comes to like, why isn't God answering my prayers, according to these verses would be, are my prayers according to God's will? Am I praying God's will? For years I prayed that God would give me a Harley Davidson. Do I have a Harley Davidson? No. Does God want me to have one? Now, if you have one, great, but he doesn't give me one. You know why? I wouldn't be here today if I... Had a hard notice. It'd be bad news. So God knows better, right? He knows better. So I prayed for years. I just thought God wanted me to have one. 
and I never got one. I finally got good with that. Like, it's all good. I mean, after you pray for years and years and it doesn't happen, then God just answered my prayer. Like, he said no, and that's okay. And so, in fact, I got to a place to where, like, it's okay. I didn't want one anymore. Like, I don't want one. If you want me to have one, just keep it. I don't want it. Okay, really, seriously. Because not too long ago, I got a text on a Saturday morning, and a guy said, is it true your wife said that if God gave you a Harley Davidson, you could have one? And I said, yes, that's true. That's what Sherry said. If God gave me one, I could have one. And he said, I have four. You can have your pick. And I said, thank you, but it took me a little bit, but, <laughs> but no thank you. Thank you, but no thank you. It's more of a lining. It's interesting, isn't it? All these assurances of 1 John have one thing in common. They have one thing in common. If you go back and read them all, you realize there's one thing in common. You know what the one thing is? Well, I'll tell you a story, and maybe you'll figure out what the one thing is. And then I end with this. So this uh, couple, very wealthy, had lots of land, had a huge house, had everything the world could offer, had everything. They had one child, and that's all they could have. They had one child, a son, one son. They had a keeper who kind of helped them with the house, with the farm, with the land. Uh, every now and then he would take care of the son when they were off doing business deals or whatever. And this was way back, true story, this was way back when um, even if you were an only son and there was a war, they drafted you and they took you. And they took his son, the draft, took him. He was killed, brokenhearted. They had a portrait of their son painted, put over the big fireplace in the big room in their big giant house. And they loved their son. They were brokenhearted. And finally, as the story goes, they died. And the estate and everything didn't have anyone to go to. There was no heir. The son died. No heir, no one to take it. And so the will was that it would be auctioned off. And so everybody around thought, hey, we're going to that auction. Man, I want some of that stuff. And so the day of the auction, everybody shows up in the town and from all around, and, and they're going to auction off everything. And the guy who was like the keeper, um, he was the guy, again, who tended to the livestock. He, he, did so, he actually came to the auction. He just kind of thought he would like to see what happens and stuff. And, and so the auctioneer said, according to the will, we must auction off this first. And he unveiled a picture, and it was the picture of the sun, a portrait of the sun. And this is what we must auction off first. And people are going like, who wants a picture of the people's son? Uh, we don't know who that guy is. And like people are kind of in a deal like, hey, let's get on to the good stuff. Like, but the auctioneer goes, we must bid on this, and this must go first before we go any further. And of course, you can only imagine 
someone spoke up and it was the keeper. It was the guy who tended to the place and knew the family and actually knew this son. And he says, hey, I'll bid on it. And he just bid everything he had. He thought, hey, I might as well just go for it. And he just put up everything he had so he could buy the portrait of the son. And when he said that, the auctioneer said, sold, the auction is closed. And everybody's in an uproar, like, what do you mean it's closed? We sold one portrait of a son. We have all this other stuff. And he says, the will says that whoever gets the son, finish it with me, gets it all. And the auction was closed. So you know what the one thing of all of our assurances is? What? It's the son. You and I have assurance today because of the son. Hey, Luke, you have assurance today because of the son. And May, where are you at? May, I think you're over here. May, you have assurance today because of the son of God who died in your place, granted forgiveness and eternal life and is keeping you and me for eternity. Now here's what I close with. If you're here today and you have no assurance, would you take that as it's the Spirit of God speaking to your heart? If you have no assurance, God wants you to know him and to have that assurance. And for you and I that are believers, that we would not just be thankful during Thanksgiving, right? You and I have grounds to be grateful for eternity, for what has been done for you and me. Would you close your eyes for a bit? Maybe just for a moment, give gratitude and praise if you today, you have this assurance, you have assurance of God's character, your salvation. You, you today have assurance that your sin is forgiven. You have assurance that God hears you. You maybe don't understand fully, like where's the answer or what's going to happen, but you have assurance that God hears that according to his will and his timing, he'll answer. And then ultimately, something that you and I take for granted, that God loves us. But it's a type of love that you and I can't even fathom. It was demonstrated on a cross. But for all of eternity, you and I will come to realize the greatness of the love of God has for us. Again, if you do not know Christ today, you have no assurance. You can call on him. In a moment as we sing praise back to God for his goodness, if you need to talk to someone, talk to someone who you're standing with today or Pastor Marty's right here. I'll be standing up here afterwards. You can come and talk. Don't leave this place with doubts and assurance. You can leave today with assurance. And for that, I praise you. Praise you that we don't have to walk through life unassured. But because of who you are and your promises and your word that you've given us, 
You and I, we have assurance. I have assurance today. I have assurance my sin is forgiven. It does not give me the right to sin. Oh, but the confidence that your blood has covered my sin. Assurance that you hear when I call. When I call for things in my own life or for things in my family or my loved ones that I ache for, that you hear and you'll answer according to your will and your timing. Thank you today. I have assurance that today, if I died, I know exactly where I would be. I would pray for my dear friends here today that if they ask themselves a question today, if I die, do I know for sure I would be with God? Oh God, if they can't, I pray your spirit would tug at their heart. You would work in their hearts and minds today. You would awaken them like you, you did May, like you did Luke. Awaken their hearts for their need for you, the Son. Because when we have the Son, we have everything we need. And for that, we give you great praise.